Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. And before we begin, I would like to remind you that there is a website called wealthformula.com that you need to check out so that you uh, can uh, access an abundance of different kinds of resources available to you on wealthformula.com that are not available simply by listening to this podcast. Uh, in addition to that, I have an idea for you. If you're thinking about potentially getting a gift for your friends and family, and you think, you know what? This person is a little bit financially mm, not adequate. Then you might consider giving them the gift of the Wealth Formula Network Basically, the idea here is the Wealth Formula Network is a private community of Wealth Formula. And when you sign up for the course, the Wealth Formula Roadmap, uh, then you get to take the course and also be part of the private community. And that private community consists of several very, very smart people. Now, I, they're like, you know, everybody's smart. Everybody has variable uh, backgrounds in terms of experience, but everybody gets to that point of becoming very competent in financial literacy. And um, anyway, we do that by, in addition to having this course, which has, you know, the likes of Tom Wheelwright, Ken McElroy, and a bunch of very smart people on it. There is a bi-weekly Zoom video call, and uh, we do sort of an open-ended Q&A and discussions about a lot of in-depth stuff Sort of like these Ask Buck podcasts that we've been doing, except, you know, you're on the spot asking the questions and getting feedback and not just from me, but from others in the group. Anyway, if that sounds interesting to you, it could make a good Christmas present. Go to wealthformularoadmap.com. Now, speaking of Christmas presents, uh, you know, I have another idea for you if you're struggling to find uh, the right Christmas present for your loved ones this year. Here is a, a general suggestion. Focus on the concept of experience, okay? Experience rather than some tangible thing. So last week, I, you know, I snuck my 10-year-old daughter Camilla out of school and drove her down to Los Angeles um, to be part of a live studio audience. And it was for a show. It's her favorite show on Nickelodeon called All That. For those of you who are not familiar, all that is sort of like a kid's Saturday Night Live. In fact, I think some of the kids in there have fed into Saturday Night Live. And uh, frankly, it's actually 
in some regards, it might even be better than Saturday Night Live because Saturday Night Live so often relies on, you know, dirty jokes and things like that. It's just cheaper stuff, but these kids are actually funny. Um, I, I realized that when I went. Anyway, we go to this show. It's, uh, it's in Burbank, actually. Um, and we, you know, stood in line for a bit and stuff. But when we got in, my daughter was on cloud nine. The whole show, I mean, we were there for like five hours. I mean, this is a shooting for a one-hour show. But, it, you know, they just keep taking cut after cut after cut. Um, you know, she got to go in, she got chosen to be one of the kids who went into the front, uh, for the live music act. And she's, you know, she got to be on TV basically. Um, you know, she saw all of her favorite child stars. She even got fives. It was a big day afterwards. She called it the most exciting day of her life literally shaking when she got out of there. I mean, it was super cute. And I was just kind of overwhelmed by what this had done for her. You know, and she was thanking me profusely. She was like, thank you, daddy. She couldn't stop talking about this show for literally the next two days. She couldn't stop talking about it. And frankly, I'm quite sure that she will never, ever forget that day. I mean, that's you know, it reminds me of like, you know, the first time I ever went to an NHL hockey game when I was a kid with the North Stars when they were a Minnesota team, not a Dallas team. And uh, what a big deal it was for me. And I still remember, you know, so much of that day and all the things that went in. And that's what this is going to be for her, which is amazing, right? On the other hand, I pretty much uh, guarantee you that the you know even though that she will never forget that day that she's gonna forget uh, a lot of the stuff that I end up getting her for Christmas probably within oh I don't know a few days um, you know it's just a reality uh, and it's, you know it's not gonna keep me from getting her some stuff um, but stuff stuff generally speaking doesn't last memories do uh, the stuff. Uh, that I'm going to get her will also cost me a lot more than this experience did. In this particular situation, I didn't know this, but, uh, you know, being part of the live uh, studio audience, all this stuff, it was free. I mean, basically all I had to do uh, was to go on the internet and, you know, print off some vouchers. Did have to stand in a line for a little bit. But uh, that site, by the way, if you're interested, because there's lots of interesting stuff, we may, we may end up going back again for some other stuff just for fun, um, is uh, that site is on-camera-audiences.com. Again, that's on-camera-audiences.com. Uh, and then they have like this full listing of different shows and stuff that you can see. You know, some of them will be more... Uh, you know, adult stuff and some of them's for kids and stuff like that. Anyway, it's, it's kind of fun. Now, of course, this kind of thing is going to live studio, seeing, seeing, you know, comedy, live comedy and stuff. It's not for everyone. Uh, in fact, my seven-year-old, uh, my seven-year-old and I, you know, Camille's my 10-year-old. She went to that, but my seven-year-old Cosma and I are going to go to a Vikings game this coming week, which is her thing. She's big into, uh, football and she doesn't remember ever going to a live football game although she went to one when she was a baby anyway she's uh that's her thing right now that one's not cheap obviously that said the general idea of your experiences over stuff is a good one and 
you know, I have been trying to implement it into my gift giving uh, as much as possible. Anyway, uh, that's sort of, you know, not really financial stuff, but it, it, I got to tell you, it helps you, if it helps you with a gift idea or two this season, then, hey, uh, hopefully I can help out. Anyway, speaking of the gift that keeps on giving, today and this episode marks the third week in the row of Ask Buck. Admittedly, I was a little hesitant about releasing uh, this this week because, again, it's the third week of Ask Buck, but um, I've actually been getting a lot of emails from you saying that, uh, you know, that you've actually really enjoyed these episodes. So that's that's good. I'm, I'm glad to hear it. So uh, that makes me feel better about finishing this tranche of questions that we have built up uh, over time. By the way, if you have questions for a future Ask Buck show, make sure to go to um, wealthformula.com and, you know, you can see at the top, it basically says Ask Buck a question and, you know, you can record a question or you can just email me on Ask Buck too. Uh, you know, some of these questions that we answer or we discuss during these shows might have actually triggered more questions for you. Uh, so while it's fresh, make sure you do that. By the way, I do prefer those recorded questions more because it just, uh, it, it feels more personal, but either way is fine. So that is what we're up to this week. And when we come back, uh, episode number three of Ask Buck. Worried about saving too little too late for retirement? The Wealth Accelerator may be exactly what you need. With the help of some of the oldest and most reliable insurance companies in the country, Wealth Accelerator allows you to take most of the upside of any good year in the stock market and use bank loans to magnify those returns significantly. And what if the stock market has a bad year? No need to fear. Wealth Accelerator is engineered so you don't participate in the losses of the market, no matter how bad of a year it is. Sounds too good to be true, right? But it's not. It's simply the same financial engineering that the ultra-wealthy have been doing for years. Now it's your turn. Check it out for yourself by going to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. So this is the third and final round of Ask Buck, at least for the probably the next couple of months, right? Um, so um, glad you have enjoyed it. At least that's what the feedback I'm getting is. Initially, I was like hesitant about doing a third uh, show, but you know, the reality is uh, I'm getting a bunch of these emails with people telling me that they like this format and that they're learning a lot. And so I think the moral story here is that, you know, we do a lot of podcasts, right? We do a lot of podcasts. We talk to a lot of people and once in a while, it's nice to do sort of one of these um, uh, 360s or would it be a 180? Anyway, of looking back at, you know, a plethora of information that we've already kind of gone through and you know, just start to put things together. 
And, um, you know, there's some real practical questions that come out of these things that we don't always assess. It's another reason, by the way, that if you enjoy this format, um, you really should consider joining uh, the Wealth Formula Network because this is sort of the Q&A thing that, that this is what we kind of do uh, basically in, in our online uh, private community, Wealth Formula Network. Um, you know, it starts with a course, of course, and then, uh, but really the, the, the most of the time is spent uh, the, the real value I think that most people are um, really excited about is the bi-weekly Zoom video phone calls that we have. Check that out, wealthformularoadmap.com. Uh, anyway, um, just, a, just a quick uh, plug there. And hey, maybe it's a nice Christmas gift to somebody. Uh, that's, that's not a bad idea, right? Maybe you're just thinking, well, maybe what am I going to get such and such? And, you know, maybe they need to, maybe they need to get a little smarter financially or something like that. Okay. So let's get on with the uh, questions today. One question, the first question, just like last time, I'm going to start with a generic question that I've been getting a fair amount of within the, um, you know, within uh, the investor club, uh, which I think, uh, deserves some, you know, significant and legitimate uh, attention to. And that question is generic in that effectively it surrounds the concept of conservation easements. You know, what are they exactly? Are they, you know, dangerous from the standpoint of, uh, you know, violating laws and things like that? So I, let me let me kind of back up and tell you what this is. Okay, so conservation easements are it's an old law. I don't I can't I don't know the entire history of it offhand. It basically allows people to uh, take you know large parcels of land they own. It's like farmland or you know uh, whatever it is. And you know with each piece of land that you own, you have certain rights. You know you have land rights, mineral rights, blah blah blah, all this other stuff that um, you know, if you've gone through any sort of real estate um, course in the past, you probably have heard of. But effectively, what conservation easements are is it's basically a, you know, it, it's a way for a landowner to effectively um, commit to preserving that land from, you know, building or mining or drilling or whatever uh, in in perpetuity and by designating a space as a conservation easement, uh, they get certain tax benefits. Now, those tax benefits can be pretty profound. So, and they're based on, you know, a valuation of what the after mining or after building value of that piece of land would be. So for example, say there's a piece of land um, and, you know, we're usually talking about thousands of acres at a time, you know, we're not talking about like, you know, I, I've got an acre here and I want to do something with it. Um, so let's say Ted Turner, for example, owns, you know, a half million acres somewhere, you know, and he's got buffalo roaming on there. And he's like, you know what, I use this for buffalo, but I'm not really going to... Um, but I'm, um, but I'm, uh, I'm not going to build anything. I'm not going to put like a big tower here. I'm not going to uh, drill for minerals and stuff. I'm going to dedicate this to a conservation easement. So now if he does that and he gets a valuation of that land and uh, 
the valuation says, man, if you had built a gigantic resort here, and if you drilled and mined over here, this land would be worth XXX amount. In theory, that amount, that theoretical amount is what is used as a deduction if the conservation easement election is made, okay? Not what he paid for the land, but what the land could be theoretically worth upon uh, this dedication to conservation easement. So, in other words, you could have a situation where, you know, a land, uh, per, land is um, purchased for, you know, let's say a dollar, and the valuation that it gets is, you know, five or six dollars. So, in that situation, if it is, uh, if it is elected uh, as a conservation easement, then what will end up happening is the deduction is not for the one dollar paid for the land, but for the five or six dollars that the valuation comes into. So, as you can imagine, that's an enormous deduction. So if you're talking about five, six, seven, whatever it is, uh, you know, it's leveraged giving. So it is a tremendous, uh, tremendously powerful tax benefit. Now here's the catch, right? So people have been doing this for a long time. It was made for farmers and farmers do it. And you know, it's a great deal for farmers or people who own land that they have no intention of building on because you're basically saying, hey, I mean, I'm not really, intending to build or, you know, drill on this land anyway, I'm just going to keep farming or I'm just going to keep my horses there. And, uh, and so, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm going to do this and take my, uh, take my, my huge deduction uh, just by saying for sure, I'm going to preserve this land for good. This land is preserved for good. So the controversy is people have heard about comes to the fact that, you know, most people don't have, um, you know, 100,000 acres uh, to do this kind of conservation easement, right? So what do we do historically? What have we done when we can't afford something on our own, but we still want to get involved? Well, we participate in syndications, okay? So the controversy in this area um, revolves around the idea of conservation easements that are syndicated. They're not just like one farmer saying, I've got a, you know, a whole bunch of, you know, I've got a hundred acres here and I want to do this. It's like a bunch of investors getting together like they would on any development project and then making an election for a conservation easement. So the question, so the controversy is really uh, around those syndicated things. And, and, and really, here's the controversy, right? I mean, because clearly that was not the intention of, of the law, of, the, uh, of having like all these individuals getting into syndications to do conservation easements. But on the other hand, I will argue, and again, I'm not an attorney and I'm not giving you advice, that you're not breaking the law because there's nothing inherently wrong uh, with participation in a syndication. There's no laws that say you can't do it. And what's the difference between one individual, you know, having land and, and, and dedicating it versus uh, syndicated land and dedicating it? Um, so that's where the controversy is. Now, the reality is that the IRS hates syndicated conservation easements. Okay? They hate them. 
But here's the thing is the IRS doesn't make laws. Congress makes laws. And right now, conservation easements and, you know, syndicated conservation easements, everything that we do are legal. So what ends up happening is every year at the end of the year, you know, the IRS ends up sending out these like, oh, we're going to investigate such and such and we're going to be harsh on this. And, and they might, I don't know, I'm not saying they're not, but I'm just telling you that every year they do the same thing. And I think a lot of people think, well, they're basically blowing smoke here because they can't really do a whole lot if things are being done legally. So they're just throwing out these warnings to people, don't participate because they don't want you to participate. Fundamentally, the issue to me is that until Congress makes it illegal or puts some certain additional limitations to this, um, is really up to you. Uh, I will tell you that, um, you know, I have participated in these things. Um, and furthermore, I have been audited, not because of the easements that I participated in, but because, uh, but because of uh, anybody who makes, you know, a decent amount of money, eventually they're going to have some audits. Uh, and a lot, especially if you have a bunch of business activities like I do. Anyway, I'll tell you in those situations, what's happened is I, um, you know, I participated with groups that, you know, dotted their I's and crossed their T's and they gave me all the paperwork that I needed. And I presented those as part of the audit. And guess what? Nothing happened. Nothing happened. Right. Not to mention if something were, you know, uh, going to happen with anything related to your conservation easement, it, it wouldn't be at your level. It wouldn't be at the limited partner level. You just have a K-1. But the thing to be challenged at all, it needs to be charged at the general partner level. So bottom line is, this is a complex issue. It's an issue that I have decided personally that I feel like I'm going to follow the law. I'm not going to follow the fear. And because the worst case scenario, in my opinion, and the opinion of some smart people that I know is, there could be a decrease potentially in valuation over a period of time, in which case the potential downside turns into um, you know, okay, potentially you may have to pay up a little bit of money later, but by that point, you've already doubled the money that you saved, that kind of thing. Anyway, I'm not going to tell you to do this. I'm not going to tell you not to do this, but the, I think the um, things that you read about, I think you just got to be smart and understand there's law and then there's, you know, there's different branches of government. There's different parts of government. There's the IRS, there's the Congress. Try to try to be rational about that and know that, you know, um, uh, if you're not doing anything illegal, you should be just fine. That's my opinion. That's not advice. Okay, so let me get to the first question from uh, a discreet person, and that is Eric Harmelin. He says, uh, Buck, what assets or investments other than owning real estate would you feel comfortable with to produce consistent cash flow? Well, um, well, here's the thing. Owning real estate equity is my favorite cash flow play because of the tax advantages upside, which I've probably talked about numerous occasions throughout these last few episodes. But if you don't care about the tax advantages and are looking for stable cash flow, there are other options that might be relatively stable. Now, specifically, um, you know, we talked earlier about first liens on real estate, and I think that's certainly a way to do it. First liens on real estate, especially if it is, um, you know, if you if you want to, uh, you know, if say you say you've got if you're 
you're loaning out money, just make sure that there's loan to value is significant um, and that you don't get, you know, screwed because all the markets went south and all of a sudden you're holding property that's significantly devalued. Um, and I will say also that even non-performing debt in, in the right hands, like AHP servicing might be a good option because um, in those situations, those kinds of funds benefit from a down economy. Um, and as I've said before, I am, you know, comfortable with George Newberry's, uh, uh, you know, role at AHP servicing and his ability to perform. So that's something. However, there are other ways to, you know, do this kind of lending that don't involve real estate. Um, and that's another thing to think about. Um, and, it, and it actually might make sense if you, uh, you know, if all you have is real estate, it might make sense to have collateral outside of the real estate markets if your primary investments are really all real estate related. So in the past, um, you know, within Investor Club, we have uh, presented opportunities for lending, you know, um, you know, even with oil and gas drilling equipment as collateral. Um, so if you have a really big company, that might honestly be a pretty, uh, pretty safe bet because you've got a, um, you know, you've got a company with all this heavy duty equipment. I mean, effectively it becomes almost like a, you know, reasonably high rated bond in that situation. Um, the big thing, honestly, with all of these things that we're talking about um, is not a specific thing, right? I mean, notes in one person's hands are very stable and in others they're not, you know? So the big thing with all this is to understand the underlying asset or fund and feel comfortable with it right? Because not all real estate is created the same, nor the people who operate it, you know? Not all debt is the same, and the people who operate those funds are of varied skill sets as well. And so, we've got to get out of this mindset of, you know, our note safe or is real estate safe and understand that, you know, in this space, in this alternative space that we live in, it is all about the operator. It's all about the, the operations. It is not so much about the asset. And that makes it very good if you're in the right hands, right? Um, it's, it, 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 anybody can take something that is a really good asset and turn it into, turn it into a lousy one um, by not operating it well. Now, if you're in a credit investor, um, you're probably seeing some of these things that I'm talking about coming by. But if you if you don't, you know, certainly join, uh, and then you are accredited, then join uh, the accredited investor group at wealthformula.com. Go to Investor Club. All right, next question is from Jason. Buck, this is Jason Beck from Little Rock, Arkansas again. Wanted to uh, get some feedback from you on oil and gas investments. I know you've had some recent webinars on that and covered that topic some. As we approach year's end, I think a lot of us are going to be looking at uh, active uh, taxable income that we uh, would like to find some uh, advantage on and wanted to see what your overall take on the oil and gas investments was. Um, get some feedback on that from the group. Thanks. Um, good question, Jason. And, um, you know, I mean, uh, at the end of the year here, right? I mean, this is really the uh, going back to, um, you know, if you're a high paid W-2 investor, you have active income, you don't have a lot of ways to write off money against your wages uh, and, you know, get a return. Um, you know, the, as we've talked about before, I mean, one of the things that you can potentially do 
um, is conservation easements. But again, they are not without controversy. And then, of course, there's you know no planned return on that. It's basically a one and done. Oil and gas investments, on the other hand, are not controversial at all uh, in the sense that the government actually loves for you to do them. Uh, and there is no, you know, there's, there's no, uh, nobody saying otherwise. Uh, um, you know, the reality is that the, the IRS has made this, uh, the, the, you know, the Congress has made this an initiative uh, to, to keep uh, dependence on foreign oil to a minimum. And the fact that the uh, tax benefits are so compelling is what's ultimately led the U.S. to become the number one oil exporter in the world. And that's why, you know, my CPA and um, yours, I know Tom Wheelwright calls the tax code a series of incentives, right? If you do what the government wants you to do, you will likely save on taxes. That's the bottom line. So with oil and gas, because business depreciation right now, in many cases, you'll be able to write off the full amount of your investment against any income, including W-2 income, which is what most high paid professionals get. So in other words, say you make $500,000 per year uh, of active income and you invest $100,000 in oil and gas. You'll get taxed on $400,000 instead of $500,000 because you basically knocked that off. You deduct that off your top line. And then the cash flow you get from the oil and gas drilling will also have some tax shelter to it. I believe it's something like 15% of the cash flows. So just from your investment in this scenario, right, um, of $100,000, if you're in the highest tax bracket, you would have saved probably about, you know, at least $40,000. In other words, 40% return on investment immediately, right? So when you hear that, and of course, and, and you know, you're, you're hearing us for the first time or you're new to this, the idea, you say, gosh, what's not to love? In theory, I would tell you that I, I couldn't agree more, but the devil is in the details. Just like anything else, we go back to the idea of operators. We talk about, you know, who's going to actually drive these assets uh, to profitability, Right. So first of all, drilling uh, for oil is inherently riskier, as you can imagine, than something like real estate. Right. Um, just think about it. I mean, what are you doing? You're basically, you know, you're you're taking a, you know, obviously there's ways to significantly improve that technology now. But I mean, if there's no if there's no oil, there's no money. The next issue is that um, this space, this oil and gas space. I have to tell you, and this is very true, and Tom Wheelwright will tell you the same thing, is there, um, you know, this is an area that's full of charlatans and people who are happy to take your money, slap on a bunch of fees, and hey, give it a shot with a drill, right? If they get lucky, then everyone wins. Everybody makes money. If they don't, they still win with the fees that they slapped on and they didn't have a bunch of money that they lost themselves. So it's not a bad deal for them either. And the reality is that that describes the majority of the operators I've worked with, uh, or at least that I've, I've, you know, vetted, tried to vet in the space. Um, it's not a pretty group. Now, that's not to say that, you know, there's not some uh, good ones. We just had a presentation, as you know, uh, with an investor uh, club for accredited investors with a group um, that, I, that I do think is legitimate. And one of the things that I really like about that group in particular was they were investing 
um, the operators on uh, 50% of, of, you know, the capital that was going into these, 50% of the equity that was going into the fund was from the operator themselves, right? And that tells me that the group is trying to make money by, by actually finding oil, not by just, you know, racking up the fees. Um, so if I was going to invest in oil and gas myself, as I have done in the past, when I actually had more of an active income, uh, you know, with more of an issue, that's the kind of group I would look for. And in the reality, I mean, I do have active income. That said, I, I happen to be a real estate professional. So I get all the same benefits from investing in real estate, basically, because bonus de- depreciation can be used to write off all, all my sources of income, uh, including active sources. So uh, listen, real estate at the end of the day, definitely less risky and I understand it very well. So for me, it's a no brainer. But if I had a bunch of active income uh, that um, and I didn't have the real estate professional designation, I would certainly consider oil and gas with the right group. And um, but the right group is the key is absolutely the key. I can't even tell you, uh, you know. Uh, that's sort of the theme so far in this uh, this podcast is it's not just the asset. It's not just a building. It's not just notes, right? This isn't like, you know, going to Ameritrade and investing in Apple stock per se, because there's only one kind of Apple stock. If you invest in oil and gas, you have all sorts of different, you know, operators out there and you got to pick, you know, you got to pick uh, one that gives you the highest chance of, of success. Okay, next question is from Josh. Hey, Buck. I wanted to take a minute to thank you and your guests on your podcast for sharing the information you do because I really learned a lot. I appreciate that. I also wanted to ask a question regarding Roth IRAs. Um, I have a Roth IRA that is uh, basically sitting in a brokerage fund or a brokerage account. I can't really contribute more because of my income. And so I'm considering cashing it out and putting it towards a syndication deal. My question is, should I, or I've considered um, putting it towards, towards the deal or uh, putting it into a wealth formula banking account. And I guess I'm, I'm uh, wrestling with what I should do there and whether it makes sense to just go straight into a deal or uh, put it into a wealth formula banking account. So curious on your thoughts on that. Uh, So thank you very much. Thanks, Josh. Um, So for those who are unclear about Josh's question, I don't think he's talking here about simply choosing between two different potential uh, investments, uh, which is, you know, either ACE indication or wealth formula banking. What he's asking is if you should put the money in a wealth formula banking policy first and then borrow from it. So why would he do that? Well, let's review. The idea is that wealth formula banking, with that, he would start getting a 5% or better compounding rate on his cash value. And um, he'd start getting that. And in as little as a couple of months, he could turn around and borrow the cash value within that account uh, and and redeploy it into a real estate investment, right? So you might ask why. Well, Josh knows, I guess from the uh, from the question, you can tell that borrowing from his cash value is actually not borrowing from his own cash value. It, what he's doing when he borrows money from Wealth Formula Banking 
is that he's borrowing uh, money from the uh, insurance company's uh, general general account, and he's they're using his money and his cash value as collateral. Why is that important? Because when because his money is growing at a compounding rate in his cash value account, but when he borrows from the insurance company, he is he is borrowing at a simple interest rate. And when he does that, it effectively, uh, he's growing capital in two places at the same time if he then goes and deploys that simple rate capital into something else that's growing at a higher rate. He's using the loan as arbitrage, essentially, to juice up other investments. So it's a strategy we talk a lot about. A lot of people are using it in our group. And as for the answer to your specific question, Josh, it's really up to you. Listen, if there's a deal you want to get in right now, then you might not have, you know, the time uh, to, to set this up, et cetera. But if you are uh, thinking about this as a long-term strategy, which I, you know, this really is only a long-term strategy, right? This is not, you know, this is one of those things that gets better and better over time. It's like a startup business, right? Um, I, you know, if if that's the goal, I would just say, you know, listen, just allocate a certain amount of money there and stick with the plan. Um, start using it um, because you're not never, it's never going to be a perfect time, right? To, to start allocating to this as opposed to a deal. Um, and as you know, I'm certainly an advocate for this kind of, um, you know, strategy. So uh, anyway, bottom line is who doesn't want to improve your returns, right? So I think if you're, if you're, you know, long-term goal is to do that, then you know, by all means, at some point, you got to pull the trigger on the banking policy. Now, I will say about the Roth um, thing that comes to mind too is, you know, I'm not, <laughs> you know, the question of whether you cash out your IRA and stuff, obviously, you're going to have some penalties and so on and so forth. One thing that comes to mind that I think is interesting that some people have used some of these conservation uh, easement techniques to mitigate the tax uh, penalty for uh, for convert for basically cashing out Roth IRAs, um, and actually from, actually from converting, um, you know, uh, regular IRAs to Roth IRAs as well. So that's just as another aside, another kind of a ninja technique that a lot of uh, folks in our group are using. Okay, um, next question. This is a final question. So it comes from Kenny French. Um, he says, I am currently working with Rod uh, Zabriskie to set up well formula banking uh, policy. So everything has been going pretty smoothly with one exception. One of the features that I really like about the life insurance policy is that it offers a way to have money grow that is protected from creditors. I agree with that. It really gives me peace of mind to know that I'll have a good chunk of money set aside for my family that can't, or at least it's very difficult for creditors or anyone else to touch. Looking how to hold a policy in a trust, LLC, personally, et cetera, I found out that California, where I live, has terrible protections for life insurance policies. Yes, it's true. They only exempt a very small amount, less than $20,000. From the little bit of research I did, it looks like a Nevada trust may be the way to go. Either way, I think this would make for a good podcast topic to do a bit deeper dive into. Um, okay. So Kenny, um, Kenny actually wrote this question. I asked him if I could just read it. Um, and as it turns out, 
because it's a really good question, okay? Um, and um, it's something to think about. And I'm, I am a California resident as well. And, and so I wanted to make sure that we did address this. And so rather than try to give you my own, um, you know, specific uh, humble opinion on this, I actually consulted uh, asset protection attorney and friend of mine, uh, Doug Lodmel. By the way, if you have not uh, picked up a copy of uh, Doug's webinar um, on asset protection, it's for free. Go to, you know, go to uh, wealthformula.com and uh, there's an asset protection webinar on there. They does a really good job sort of talking from, you know, basics to, to advance. And, um, you know, Doug is a really smart guy. He's my asset protection attorney. Um, so he writes back. So I wrote Doug and, and forwarded your question basically. And, and here's what he wrote back. He said, this is an interesting topic. Life insurance in many states is already a protected asset. So that, so that is the default by which the insurance people sell it. As Kenny states, in some cases, it is not protected at all, like California. In that case, life insurance turns into just an asset like any other and must be put into an asset protected vehicle. What does he mean by that? Basically like an LLC, right? But because it is life insurance, there is an additional consideration of what happens when the policy pays out and how that affects the estate. For that reason, there is also an additional choice, which is an ILIT, I-L-I-T, otherwise uh, that stands for Irrevocable Life Insurance Trust. So he created this flowchart for me, but basically here's the deal. The issue is that since life insurance has a death benefit, which could impact your estate size, this must be, your, be a primary driver for where you hold it. We talked a little bit about estate planning in the last um, uh, ask Buck episode. So go back and listen to that. But you know, the numbers for, for estate, uh, estate taxes is, is pretty high. So, but, but it will affect a number of you. So bottom line is, uh, he go, continues, if the death benefit will create or increase an estate tax, then the policy should be held by either an islet or another completed gift type trust, like a dynasty trust, Dynasty Trust, uh, for example, a Nevada Dynasty Trust, as you kind of alluded to. Now, if the death benefit will not affect the estate tax because the total estate is below the exemption, then I would suggest using the asset protection structure to hold the insurance if you are not in a state with good protections. Got it? So basically he's saying, uh, he's saying that if you're, you know, so if you're first check on your state, your state gives you enough protection, then don't worry about it. If your state does, uh, you know, if, if, if your state is not giving you enough protection and, you know, you, you're not looking at an estate that's going to be basically over 10 million or whatever, then automatically you can go directly and say, okay, you can just put this in an LLC. Okay. Now, he goes on to say, it also matters if the insured is using the life insurance as savings vehicle and will need for it for retirement. If so, then it is better in the asset protection plan. And again, this is important. 
right? So many people in this space, of course, that we're talking about do, do like the idea of eventually using these funds as a um, retirement plan. So uh, the, the uh, LLC ownership or personal ownership, if you don't need the LLC, is really sort of the ideal measure there. Now, he does go on to say, the issue with the dynasty trust is that you are giving the assets away. So if you plan on needing them, this could create a conflict. Also, remember an asset protection trust can convert into a dynasty trust at death. So this is really the most flexible tool for most clients. Um, anyway, so that, that to me sounds like the best, you know, the best, uh, the best possible sort of scenario. And honestly, I kind of wish I'd known about that because I probably would have done that. I actually haven't had a dynasty trust uh, myself. And I use it for asset protection too. Um, so in this situation, it sounds like you could set up an LLC that basically triggers into a dynasty trust upon death, in which case, you know, you don't need it for retirement anymore, right? So um, gosh, that's a really good idea. So um, what I would suggest is if that sounds of interest to you, uh, reach out to Doug because he is, uh, he's the guy to set that kind of thing up. Anyway, hopefully that makes sense, Kenny. It sounds like in your situation, bottom line is, um, you know, you know, maybe touch base with Doug or, you know, with another asset, good asset estate planning attorney and mention this idea that Doug's talking about, which is, okay, I live in California. And, you know, I may have an estate, uh, estate tax issue at some point, five or 10 million at some point. Um, hopefully you do, because that means you're doing well. And say, I want to put, set this up as an asset protection type LLC uh, that holds the insurance at first. And then I want it to trigger into a dynasty trust upon my death. Good stuff. I learned something there too. So thanks for asking that uh, question, Kenny. Um, anyway, that is all the questions I have now for um, the three episodes of Ask Buck. Uh, one, two, and three. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Hopefully you got something out of it. And I want to thank you for giving me all those questions because I think, you know, uh, these sort of, uh, you know, uh, you know, going back and looking at all the information we have and asking questions really helps, really helps for people to process the information. Um, so, you know, start asking those questions, put them on Ask Buck. As soon as you have them, you have them now. We may not plan for a couple months, but as soon as you got new thoughts or ups on any of what we've talked about in the last three episodes or in any of the podcasts that will come up or as time goes by, go to Ask Buck, ask the questions, preferably because it's more fun that way. And um, let's, let's do some, you know, collective learning together through this. Anyway, again, this has been my pleasure. The last three episodes and, and uh, starting next week, we will go back to a format of me interviewing somebody else for a while. And, uh, and until then, this is Buck Joffrey with Wealth Formula Podcast signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. 
As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.